0: Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. Blessed you are, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory. Blessed you are, eternal God, source of wisdom and knowledge. Give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. Lord, reveal yourself to us. For we can only know you if you give yourself to be known. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You may be seated. St. Andrew's Church, I believe Isaiah 40, which is the text I'm going to look at this morning, in particular verse 1 and 2, the Old Testament lesson that was read just a moment ago. I believe this text is here to teach us that the kingdom of God is breaking in and it comforts His people. The kingdom of God breaks in And it comforts his people. This morning we come to Isaiah 40, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament and one of the most famous passages throughout old history. Isaiah 40 has been an inspiration, and its tenor is timeless. Isaiah 40 inspired Handel in 1741 as he wrote his famous oratorio, Messiah, in 24 days. He used 73 verses to compose it, with 22 of them coming from the book of Isaiah, especially chapter 40. The British statesman and protector of England, Ireland, and Scotland, Oliver Cromwell, wrote to this chapter time and again, went to this chapter time and again for comfort. In fact, he said it was the greatest chapter in the Bible. Martin Luther poured over Isaiah 40 in the castle at Salzburg in Austria. It put iron into his blood and steel in his backbone, encouraging him to stand before Emperor Charles V and his council to say, Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. The abolitionist John Brown read Isaiah 40 in prison at Harper's Ferry. When he was crushed and broken hearted, Daniel Webster went to Isaiah 40. The British poet Alfred Tennyson called it one of the five great classics in the Old Testament record. And John the Baptist let it fuel his ministry. When the priests and Levites asked him who he was, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. His message was Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is a chapter for a people who need hope, I work in hospice, and one of uh, the greatest fears for people is a lack of control. Because they have no control, they have no hope. And as you get older and things happen and you go to more doctor's appointments and they say more things, all the things you can't control, it so often brings on feelings of hope, uh, hopelessness, no control. One question uh, that I usually ask someone before they go into surgery, I learned this a long time ago, but I ask them, what's your greatest fear? What are you fearful of? And that lets me know how I can pray for them, but also if there's something that we can take care of, I want it to be taken care of, because so often someone will uh, say what their fear is, and family is right there saying, we don't have to deal with that now. And I think, well, when would you like to deal with it? Later? Let's, let's deal with it today. Let's restore the relationship Let's say the things that needs to get said. If, if you're not right with God, let's get right with God. What, what are you fearful of? And I went to go see a lady one time. She was about to have surgery. She was going to be in a wheelchair for a few days after her surgery. And I said, well, what, what are you fearful of? How can I pray? And she said, I don't want to be an invalid. And as soon as she said the word invalid, I thought, oh, she's, there's another word in our English vernacular spelled the same way as invalid. Invalid. And what she was really saying is she was in the wheelchair and she's not able to help out at her family anymore. She's not able to do the things she used to do. She felt like an invalid, but she felt invalid to her family, to her community, to her friend group. One saw another lady one time. She had had a stroke. And if you've ever uh, talked to someone who has suffered from a stroke, sometimes their voice changes. And every Friday night she went to this fish place with her girlfriends. And But she didn't want to go because she didn't talk like she used to, and she was embarrassed. She can't control the way she talks. And so there's no hope. Not only inv- invalid, but an invalid member of her community, because she's not like she used to be. Can you imagine Israel at this point in their history? They had to feel both as an invalid and invalid as the people of God. Isaiah, for the most part, is written in the midst of conflict. The kingdom of Israel under Solomon, Saul, David is no more, and at this point, it's been divided into two kingdoms. One kingdom in the north is called Israel; it's made of ten tribes, and there's a kingdom in the south called uh, Judah, which has two tribes. And Judah is in where Jerusalem lies, but it's a divided kingdom. Not only are they divided, but Assyria at this point is quickly becoming the world's superpower. And for the fledgling nation of Israel, its glory days are over. They feel helpless, they feel hapless in a predicament that they can't control. Remember that in their history, God led them out of Egypt into this land of Canaan, gave them a kingdom. David was their pinnacle of their history. They had a king, but now instead of one kingdom, there's two kingdoms. The northern kingdom has either been or it's about to be destroyed, but it is not good for these people. Things are not looking good for Israel. One of the things I always found interesting about Isaiah is it's 66 chapters. It's a long book in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, we have 39 books. And in the New Testament, there's 27. And here we're at chapter uh, uh, 40. And can you imagine what the first uh, 39 chapters of Isaiah are about? Well, growing up, when I would do something that my mom didn't like, and subsequently when she didn't like it, dad wasn't going to like it either, but she would say, wait until your father gets home. Now, there is a lot. I read a lot of commentaries on Isaiah uh, over the last uh, couple weeks uh, as Robert asked me to prepare, and I was doing an overview of Isaiah. And let me just summarize for you uh, in non-theological language. Chapters 1 through 39 is really... Uh, Israel, wait until dad comes home. Wait until Yahweh comes home. That's 1 through 39. But then we get to chapter 40 where Isaiah seems to take a sharp turn. And we read from Mark this morning. We heard from Mark in our lesson where Mark seems to take a sharp turn. And the message in Isaiah 40 to 66 is not wait till your father comes home, wait till God comes home. But verse 1 of chapter 40 is comfort, comfort my people. I mean, just think of the uncomfortableness of Israel, believing that they might be an invalid member of the people of God. They are p- way past the good old days at this point, which weren't that great to begin with, but they, they were there not because of an outside job, but because of an inside. They're in this predicament because of an inside job, because uh, the reason we have two nations is because after Solomon died, Solomon's son Rehoboam imposed a heavy tax on the people, and they rebelled. And so the... the United Nations split in two. They're not there because of an outside force. They're not there because of Egypt. They're not there because of Babylon. They're not there because of Assyria. They, they were divided among themselves. And a divided kingdom will never stand. A congregation divided can't endure and a marriage divided can't endure. And in the midst of Israel's brokenness, wondering whether they're in, uh, in a valid member of the people of God, wondering what they're going to do, what does God say to his people? Comfort, oh comfort, my people. Now I think the word comfort is important there, and and maybe if I preach on this again one day, I'll come back to it. But what I want to focus on is not the comfort, comfort part, but the second part of God's statement there in verse 1 when he says, comfort, comfort, my people. When I was growing up, My father would tuck me in and he would say to me, if I had to line up all the eight-year-olds in the world and pick just one, I'd pick you. Dad watched this morning and do you know what the text I got? Excellent message. And I still would choose you. I was in the room when all three of my daughters were born and out all the kids in the world. I would pick them. I want you to know that I think my kids are wonderful, brilliant, funny, kind. But I don't love them because of how smart they are, how brilliant they are, or what they can produce. I love them because I love them. In Deuteronomy 7, we're told why God loves Israel. Why does God love? These are knuckleheads. Why does God love these people? Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6, says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in numbers than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers... The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Why does God love Israel? Is it because they're the smartest? No. The most faithful? Obviously not. The best? No. Did they have the most people? Were they the largest nation? No. Why does God love them? He loves them because he loves them. They are his people. St. Andrew's Church. God loves you. Is it because you're the best? No. Is it because you have your life together? No. In fact, I would venture to say that several of you right now are in an absolutely rotten spot in life. And most likely because it's your own fault. Are you the best looking congregation? No. I mean, you're, you're pretty decent looking as a congregation, but it's not like I've got pictures at my house of you, you know? (laughs) Is it because you're the smartest? No. Why does God love you? He loves you because he loves you, period. Don't overthink the love of God. He loves you because he loves you, And do you know the beauty of this, loved ones? I mean, just carry the line from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Who spared Adam and Eve's life in the garden when they sinned? Adam or God? God did that. Who instigated the covenant with Abraham? Abraham or God? God did that. Who was it that formed a nation from Jacob to have 12 sons who would become 12 tribes to form the nation of Israel? God or Jacob? God did that. Who was it that freed the people from Egypt? Moses or God? God did that. Who was it that preserved a remnant from Judah so that the people could go back to Israel and rebuild the temple? Nehemiah or God? God did that. God didn't love Israel because of what they could produce And God doesn't love you because of what you can offer him. The good news of Jesus is that God has done something for you that you are incapable of doing for yourself. What do you have that can make God's life better? What is it that you can offer that will add God longer life or more money or more joy or more power? What do you have? St. Andrews, you got nothing. That's what you got. You have nothing to make God's life better. So why does he love you? He loves you because he loves you. So rest in his perfect love. You are not loved because of what you produce. You are loved because you are loved. As the old song says, there's nothing in my hand I bring. It's simply to the cross I cling. So Isaiah 41 says, comfort, comfort my people. My people be comforted. You are my people. And I need some of you to hear this morning. That while it sounds plural with my people because it is, you need to know that you are not washed up into the crowd of my people. God loves you as an individual. It's not, you know, God loves you, but it's really not that big a deal because he loves everybody. No, he loves you as an individual. He loves you, Keith. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you without qualifier, without qualm, just full stop. God loves you as an individual who make up his people. You matter because God says you matter. And out of all of his creation, if he had to pick one, he would still pick you. Everyone in a new creation is a new creation and adopted into the family, and in the family, every single person matters. In my family, I've got a wife and three daughters, and our youngest daughter is named Isabel. I don't want to mention Madeline and Rebecca this morning because if I talk about Madeline and Rebecca, they might get embarrassed, and I do not want to embarrass Madeline and Rebecca. So I won't talk about how Madeline made the dance team this year. Um, Don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about how Madeline goes to a Bible study by her own volition on Thursday mornings. Uh, I don't want to talk about that. And I won't talk about how Rebecca signed up to help students with developmental differences at school and how I'm just so stinking proud of them. But I will talk about Isabel because she's back in the kids' area and she won't be embarrassed. She's four years old. She's about to be five. She loves Paw Patrol. Therefore, I love Paw Patrol. She won't want you to know that my favorite character is Sky and Chase. It's very important to her. She is a joy to be around. All my kids come from impressive stock. Isabel has the last name Brown, just like the rest of us in Brown is a formidable last name. You want to know where the, the last name Brown comes from? It most likely means that these people, either their hair was brown or they wore brown clothing. It is a powerful testimony to the kind of people we are. I mean, just imagine in the Middle Ages, uh, in the Anglo, where they started using glass-like surnames. And who are these people? Well, these are the smiths, and they are blacksmiths, and they build impressive things with metal. They make axes and swords, and they, they forge things in a fire. And who are those people? Those are the potters. And they, they make pottery, and they, their pottery goes to the king and to the queen. They make impressive pottery. Who are those people? Well, those are the browns. What do they do? They wear brown clothing. <laughs> they got brown hair. It's impressive. I mean, the most famous of us, Charlie, can't even kick a football. I have a four-year-old, soon-to-be-five-year-old, Isabel May Brown, and I love her. And I love her just because I love her. I don't love her because of what she can give me or produces. I love her because I love her. And even though Brown is the fourth most common last name here, there is only one Isabel May Brown, and she is not lost in the crowd when it comes to her dad. That is exactly how God feels about you. For those of you this morning who feel lost in the crowd, you need to know your internal feelings, which are valid, those internal feelings of inadequacy, they don't come from the Lord. Because that's not how he feels about you. He loves you because he loves you. And just like my dad, he says, if I could pick one, I'd still choose you. I love you. See, not only does God feel that way about you, that you're his people, but notice how he speaks to his people in verse 2. He says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Isaiah, Comfort, bring comfort to the people and speak kindly to these people that don't have Jerusalem anymore. Speak kindly to the people who don't have their homeland. Speak kindly to the people who don't feel like a nation because they've been robbed of their, what it means to be a nation Speak kindly to these people who capital is this place that defines who they are, but it no longer does because they're not really who they're supposed to be. They've not kept the covenant. Speak kindly to those people. I mean, what a powerful word to people who might not feel like they are God's people, not worthy to be God's people. Speak kindly and comfort. I mean, there's something important about the tone of our voices, isn't, isn't there, loved ones? Husbands and wives, what is your tone towards one another? Would someone from the outside think that you're kinder to total strangers than you are to your spouse because of your tone? That doesn't come from God. God is concerned with his tone here. He's not just saying he wants his people to be comforted, but he is concerned about the tenderness with with which he uh, displays that concern. I don't know about your house, but in our house, moms are better at this. Deborah, not that we have poor moms, one mom. Deborah is better at this than I am, but there is something about a mother's tenderness that I think emulates the tenderness of God. And what does God exactly say in such a tender tone to these people? He says three things. He says, call out to her, do this tenderly, call out to her, her warfare has ended, her iniquity has been removed, and that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah comes back to this theme in chapter 61 when he says, Instead of your shame, you'll have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Notice that in verse 2, God does not sweep all of the things, the problems, challenges that they had under the rug. He doesn't, he doesn't say no harm, no foul. He says your iniquity has been removed. He knows exactly what they've done. He doesn't call them perfect because they aren't perfect. He calls them sinners because they've sinned. And yet he says their iniquity has been removed. Not that he would avoid the stumbling block, but God has removed the stumbling block. Do you know that God, and I know you know this, I'm just, writing, I'm just telling you this to remind you of what you already know, but do you know that God knows everything you and I have done? He knows it all. All the things that you've never told anybody and all the things you have. The time you were at the party and popped the kid's balloon because they were annoying you. I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about you. <laughs> the time you saw that cat and you put that cat back up in the tree. God saw that. The time you took candy from a baby. The time you were in a store and you saw someone you didn't want to talk to, so you ran away as quickly as possible. I actually had a whole list of sins that we actually do struggle with, and I chose not to bring them up this morning because if the iniquity has been removed, who am I to throw stones? But the point is this. God doesn't throw your and I sin under the rug. He does the thing we can't do for ourselves. He knows it all, and he is still tender towards you. Not just tender, but joyful. Probably my favorite verse out of the Old Testament is Zephaniah three seventeen, And I actually like the ESV and the King James here because I think they, um, not that it's better in the Hebrew and English and all that, I just like it better, therefore it's better. But because uh, the NASB says, shouts of joy. But in ESV, in King James, it says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That God is so joyful over you that the, the Lord of all creation sings over Ryland Brown." That God Almighty, Moses could not see the face of God. He saw the backside of God, and when he came down the mountain, he glowed. That God sings over you and me. That is mind-blowing. I asked someone recently if they were looking forward to Christmas. I asked a lady, and uh, she said they hated Christmas. And I said, why? Why? And they said for so long they were a single mom with two kids and the expectations to keep up at Christmas and the maxing out at credit cards and all the things. And I've never gone through that, but what she was saying made complete sense. And as I thought about that, I wonder, and I put the sermon together, I wonder how many of us have felt like that with God and religion and church and all the things. That the pressure of what you think it means to be a Christian, the people of God, expectations mount to whether you wonder if you're even a Christian or not. You need to hear this morning, loved ones, that Christianity is not about what you can do to meet expectations. It is about what God has done to meet his expectations for you. Jesus has met the expectation for you. God gives you everything for success. He gives you his word. He gives you his church. He gives you himself. By Jesus dying on the cross, as the propitiation for your sin. He gives you the Holy Spirit that lives in your heart. You become a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. And those feelings of inadequacy, if they don't come from God... Because God doesn't think of you as inadequate. inadequate. You are not the holdup to God's joy and happiness. He doesn't love you because of what you can produce. He loves you just because he loves you. Full stop. Don't overthink it. He loves you. He knows what you've done. He loves you. He loves you. Period. I mean, there's so much in today's culture that is about production and production value. People are valued in our society about what they can produce. And yet, Christianity, this new way to be a, a human being, which is, that's what Christianity, it's a new way to be human. It means to be fully human, fully alive, power of the Holy Spirit, becoming like Christ. It, our value is not based upon what we produce. That's why James says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Why? so they can do things for us? No. We love them because we love them. We have the Beatitude sale going on and our connection to Haiti. Why do we do that? We love them because we love them. Many of you came Tuesday night, Christmas blessing. Why did you do that? You don't know those people. Why would you do that? We, God loves them because he loves them. Some of you are taking care of your aging parents right now. Why are you doing that? Because they're yours and you love them. I mean, it's deeper than just transactional. Well, they did that for me when I was younger. I got to do... It's, for, for those of you who are taking care of your parents, you know it's much more, uh, much more than just a transaction-based experience. You're doing that because you love them. Why do you love them? You love them because... You love them. When it comes to my kids, I don't think of them as inadequate because they don't produce anything. I don't love them because of what they produce or don't produce or will one day produce. I love them because they're my kids. Not all the kids in the world. I will always pick them. Always. I love them because they're mine. Period. Period. God loves you because you're his, period. Don't overthink it during Advent. You can overthink it during other times of the year, but don't overthink it during Advent. He loves you because he loves you. In a moment, you're going to come to the table as we move to our liturgy of the table, and you're going to receive communion. Do you know we use that phrase, receive communion, purposely? Sometimes in the vernacular we'll say take communion, but that—that's we receive communion because it's actually something given to us. It's more proper to say, it's proper to say we receive communion because Christ has voluntarily given himself to us. Therefore, it's something we receive, not something we just take because it's not ours. It's given to us. Why? God loves you because he loves you. So St. Andrew's Church, as I close, clear the way for the Lord in your life. Make ready your heart to receive the love of the Lord. St. Andrew's Church, behold The Lord your God will come to you with might, with his ruling arm, with his arm ruling for you. Behold, his reward is with him. Like a shepherd, he will tender his flock. He will gather the lambs and gently lead you. He loves you because he loves you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.